how threatened are you professionally by the fact that that you have a bright and beginning to be well recognized son as a writer oh i'm very disturbed by that are you no. I'd like him to be very successful as long as he doesn't get too successful. As long as they don't start saying, "Oh, uh, Kingsley, is this? Are you anything to do with uh, Martinez?" And and uh, I said, "Ish, I'm the boy, Ish Fire." That's right, be in prospect. Is it likely to happen, do you think? Oh, I hope not. But you never know. It gives me great pleasure to kick off my Martin Amis with Matt Dancona, author, award-winning columnist, and editor-at-large for The New European. First of all, a big welcome and thank you to well, you, Matt, thank you for very much. jumping what at the chance to be the first guest on this what series. Honor. What a great way of memorializing him, and it's terrific. We are, of course, speaking about a month after the news yes. broke of Martin Amis' passing. How did the news come to you? How did you find out? Um, I, I saw it on social media, actually. I, I wasn't aware that he'd been seriously ill. I gathered from people that he'd become much more tired and reclusive and so on, but I hadn't any idea about the fact that he was mortally ill. It, it was really quite shocking. I mean, the, you know, I remember I remember vividly the day Joe Strummer died, for example. And this was this is bigger than that because, you know, being a writer and a journalist and growing up in the eighties and nineties, which was I suppose his imperial period, he was huge, a huge influence. Not 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 that I've ever tried to be a writer in his style or anything. But I think if you were growing up in, in, in those years um, and you wanted to be a journalist or a novelist, you know, he was, he filled the skyline and he was a very big cultural figure as well as a commentator, as a person around the London scene. And um, I mean, I didn't meet him very often or talk to him that often, but as it happened, when I started as a journalist, um, and from time to time called him for a quote on this and that. He was invariably charming. And when you called him and asked him for these quotes, were you surprised to discover how congenial he was? Very. And I mean, actually, to be fair, I, I, there was one I remember where the whole idea of the literary canon, you know, the idea of a sort of body of established great literary works was going through one of its many combative arguments, I think led by the Times Higher on this occasion. And uh, I was set to work to do a sort of ring round of... Um, novelist so I did and 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 I spoke to Kingsley Amos and Martin Amos on the same morning and they were both extremely charming did they seem similar in there no I mean Kingsley was um more reliably sort of gruff and you know I, I'm sure it's terrible what what's being done now I bet they're not reading proper books and he kind of slightly hardened at least in his public life into a kind of reactionary figure uh, Amos Feast, you know, what I call Martin, was much more, I mean, he was kind of thinking on the go because he was writing the information and he was starting to try and interrogate what he thought about political correctness at that point. So we had a very long conversation, which wasn't really to do with the canon at all, but was fascinating about, you know, was political correctness just what right-wing people call decency? Um, or was it a kind of scolding, pinched mentality that would close down the imagination and he and he was extremely open-minded when you say he was open-minded where did he appear to fall in this particular argument i think he was genuinely well he thought very very deeply about things and wasn't ever willing to just sort of swallow the the orthodoxy of du jour you know he 
he read very deeply. He he thought very deeply, and I I formed the impression that he hadn't. He genuinely hadn't made his mind up because I think that he was, for for all of the claims that he sort of made the ritual stagger to the right as he grew older. I think he he remained a labour person all his life. You say at the time he was writing the information, and, was, and in that book, yeah. the main protagonist, Richard Tull, says at one point, all of Britain seems to be Labour now. <laughs> yes, and that right. was actually something that Martin Amos was subsequently quoted on yes, as having yes. said. I mean, he says in um, Experience, which we'll be talking about more in a minute, in Scribendo Veritas, you know, that, that all novels are to a certain extent autobiographical. And Kingsley Amos said that as well. And I, th- I think it must be true, doesn't it? I don't think that his characters were sock puppets, except in... The case of, let's say, uh, The Pregnant Widow, where he, he's quite open about the fact that it's a Roman clay. But nonetheless, you know, there's no doubt that the, the characters in all his books are, to some extent, voicing things he was either trying to get across or trying to settle. And he was throwing out ideas and seeing what came back. I mean, that's one of the things that was appealing about him was that you know, he was a contentious, controversial writer. He wasn't bland in any way. You just alluded to the book there, Experience, published in 2000. But before we get on to that, as the trailer to this series mentions, the sheer volume and effusiveness of the stuff that's been written about Amos and his body of work, those 15 novels and eight works of nonfiction, has, I think, made me realise how hard some were hit by his death, yeah. not, not least yourself. Um, if I may, you wrote in The New European a couple of days after, quote, the death of famous artists, musicians and writers has its own unacknowledged Geiger counter, Though civility generally prevents us from saying as much, it is not often that we are well and truly polaxed, bereft in a way that says as much about us as it does about them. What do you think the reaction to the death of Amos says about us? I can only speak for myself, I think, on this. And I don't think for most of the younger generation, this was quite the event it was Mm. for my generation. And Uh, for the benefit of listeners, you replace yourself. The the, the best way to describe people like me is, uh, I I turned 21 in 89, and and I always say, you know, we're we're Fukuyama's babies. You know, for us, the big event, if you like, the the formative event of us as we steered into adulthood was the fall of the wall. And so we'd we'd been at school and university in the 80s, which was uh, both a very exciting and a very challenging period. It was a vibrant time to be around. There's no question about it. Britain was suddenly pulsing with electricity and uh, good and bad. Um, uh, and then the 90s, also a hedonistic decade, the, the, the kind of seeds of new labor were sown and then, and then blossomed in 97. Clinton in America, there was a kind of false dawn that the world was going to now kind of settle around uh, market capitalism and liberal democracy. Of course, this was instantly proved to be a vanity project in the sense that the, the collapse of former Yugoslavia, not to speak of the desperate inequalities that started to emerge all over the world, showed that this was, was not going to happen and that the what lay ahead was going to be much more bumpy and much more uh, unexpected and in some cases pathological. But that's my that's my background. And in some respects, and I find myself now reflecting deeply upon the errors of that decade and how, you know, we're now faced with um, what to do about the, the, what followed. And it must say, you know, uh, Amos, uh, what he was, uh, how old was he when he died? He was... Um, 73. Right. So he was, uh, almost, Same age as Kingsley. Uh, uh, right, exactly. So, you know, I imagine for him it was watching all this, you know, and I, you can read in the essays on Trump a deep, deep despair. You know, I, I, I still think there is grounds for hope. I think I'm, I don't take stenography from the younger generation, but I think they're, they're right on uh, 
tremendous range of subjects. And I think that once they've kind of worked out what their revolution is, they will be an exciting generation. There hasn't really been a generation like them since the late 70s in that respect. But, you know, for me, you know, Amos was a, I mean, first of all, you know, just to put it in its kind of most basic form, the the pleasure I derived from his writing was immense and remains immense and will carry on being immense. You know, he describes Nabokov and Bellow as being the two mountains on his skyline, you know, and he was certainly one of mine. And um, yeah, I, again, I think for the benefit of listeners who may have come to this podcast, having read and really enjoyed Martin Amos's work, but may not know about all of his influences, it's worth saying that uh, the names Vladimir Nabokov and Saul Bellow will come up time and again throughout the series. Absolutely. I mean, Saul Bellow became a close friend of his, as he describes in both experience and inside story. Well, a big theme of this conversation is going to be father-son dynamics. And, Absolutely. And when Kingsley and passed... Bellow became the surrogate father. And Nabokov, he didn't know, but there's a very touching essay about visiting Nabokov's widow and visiting Mrs. Nabokov. Um, and he he uh, he idolizes both authors and uh, his essays and writings. He talks about them both all the time. I mean, Bellow, there was a genuine love. Um, but Nabokov, I think, was sort of his... Um, uh, you know, a great lodestar for him. I'm going to ask you to open up that hard, oh, yes. hardback copy of Experience in a Minute to the passages that you have chosen. But I also wanted to ask you just when you discovered Martin Amis. When was the first time you came across his work? Yes, uh, um, actually, um, both my late parents were, were pretty into him. Um, and uh, so I think I, my first, the first one I read was, um, which is not one of his greatest works, though it's very good, is Other People. Um, and that must have been when I was 12 or 13, I think. And then I thought, well, this is interesting. And then I, uh, I, I can't get the sequence exactly right, but then I, I mean, I remember the sled, the absolute sort of literary sledgehammer of money, which was, um, and then that I think was a kind of cultural event in a way. I mean, I, it was a book that so accurately, um, ca- captured very early on what was to be the spirit of the 1980s in, in it. And, and, and that made a massive influence. And, and what, after that, I was really off the races and I wanted to read everything he'd written. So I, I read the, the shorter, as he put it, well-behaved novels back to Rachel Papers in, I think, 73. That's and, right. I think Other People sits between, yes, obviously, his first novel, The Rachel absolutely. Papers and Money, which was released in 1985. And I don't know who will be fortunate enough or, or maybe unfortunate enough to pick that book as the one to discuss a, because it is such a, a pivotal work. It's probably going to come up more than once throughout no, the series, I, to I, be fair. I, I completely agree. I mean, it's huge. And and then the sort of trilogy of uh, money, London Fields, and the information were, you know, massive. Let's get into sure. experience. Well, what is the first passage that you would like to, well, to I, discuss? I, I guess I'll go in order in the book. Experience, as I say, published in 2000, a memoir. I suppose by way of prelude that, you know, he was fit. He was, he just turned 50 when it came out. And I, you know, he famously says in a number of places that when you turn 40, you stop saying hi and start saying bye. So he was well into the bye stage. I was 32 when Experience came out, so I was still on the high side of the the fence. But I guess I was beginning to contemplate, you know, middle age. You know, you always think you're going to get away with it. You're going to be the person that doesn't get middle age. But, you you know, you start to realize you are, actually. And I became a father the following year. And um, so it was a very, very good time to have this. And he'd, he'd had this tumultuous 
1990s in which um, all sorts of things had happened. Um, Another big theme of this conversation would be friendship. And there was a a famous um, breakdown of a friendship with Julian Barnes. That had happened. The The information's advance was £500,000. He changed agent. Um, And that had caused a huge stir. Ad has had the cost of his teeth. And, um, you know, most uh, moving of all was the, uh, and, and tragic was the discovery in 94, I think, of uh, his cousin Lucy Partington's remains at the Fred, Fred and Rose West house. And he deals a lot with that in the, in the book. But this, this passage just um, is very moving, I think, because I wanted to mention it because it, I, I did know Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, because um, of my journalistic life. And it, it's well known, and they've both written it that they were very close. And it describes a, a conversation with um, Hitchens and then moves into a, a description of the despair he feels about his two sons as he, it becomes clear that the divorce with Antonio is going to happen and it's all gone wrong. He's speaking to Christopher Hitchens. Um, it has all followed hard upon, I said to him, that lugubrious Christmas when suddenly it was my turn, break up separation from children, health crisis, Lucy Partington, Bruno Fonseca, that's his um, new brother-in-law to be, Sol Bello in the ITU, and a five-year novel, The Information, begun in peace and finishing now in spasm war. Christopher sat there offering his presence, say as much as you like or as little as you like. He could contemplate me, I felt, from a vantage of senior humanity. Acknowledging this, I said... All I need now is the death of a parent. But here for a little while longer is the house on Horseleach Pond. Here are the trees where Christopher and I, at the age of 36, stood posing for photographs with our sons in our arms, Louis, Alexander. The women taking the photographs were Antonia and Eleni. And there would be other births, Jacob, Sophia. All this is going to go. All this is going to disappear. This will fail. I will fail. I said to myself, look at it, look what you've done. There is the rented car, a different rented car, in which you will drive alone to Logan. There is your wife crying in the drive. Behind her are your boys on the patch of grass, with that zoo of theirs, the frogs, the turtles. Thank you. Reflecting on that passage, what does it evoke for you? It's incredibly uh, good on the... um, I mean, I, I can't think of many evocations in literature that are as moving on the the pain of divorce and the 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 guilt of the um what you inflict upon your children um but it's also terribly uh powerful about his relationship with hitchens because they were like brothers more than brothers really yeah they were as close as two people he used to say as close as two men can be without being a married gay husband and husband. And I thought that was a brilliant way of describing it. And it was true. And um, he says in the Charlie Rose interview uh, where they're remembering Hitchens, uh, he and James Fenton and Ian McEwan and Salman Rushdie, he says, you know, Hitch would occasionally try, you know, I think it's very funny. Um, but they were, they, were, they were unbelievably close. And the point he always used to make in interviews was that Hitchens was the one friend to whom he could say literally anything without any fear of judgment. The, the, the structure of experience is extremely bold because 
typically he he doesn't opt for the I was born in 1949. He jumps across time periods. He jumps from very amusing letters he sent to Kingsley Amis and his stepmother, the novelist Elizabeth Jane Howard, um, when he was both at Cramming College, desperately trying to get qualifications, and then later at Oxford. And and they're very funny because they're, they're, they are, you know, set, put it mildly juvenilia. You can see him sometimes trying to be a worthy son and a, and a worthy stepson to Elizabeth Jane Howard, who was, you know, a pretty amazing writer too. Experience generally knocks on the head, I think, the, this idea that he, he was essentially just a stylist, you know, that Marston Amis was a master of style, and that's true. Uh, style was, for him, absolutely essential. But Experience is an incredibly vulnerable book. I mean, he opens himself he, he opens himself up in a way that many writers don't. Which I think is particularly interesting in his case, because I agree, just his implacable, cool, that kind of Mick Jagger broodiness, I could never imagine... Martin Amis weeping. Yes, it's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, even if he was on Newsnight, he spoke in complete paragraphs and with such confidence. But that confidence, I think, was hard won. I remember reading an interview where, I think he may mention it in experience, actually, that he always had um, a slight tremor in his hands, which is fascinating, a compulsive smoker. And I think he, he was far from kind of immune to... The, the shocks of life, and quite the opposite. And our experience shows that beyond doubt. It's about the transition from the innocence of youth to the experience of 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 being an adult and becoming middle aged, and and those transitions. And like all great writers, he's fascinated. He's fascinating both on the specific, and of course, his story is. You know, it does seem that there isn't really another example of father and son, or a mother and daughter who are you know, about the same sort of level of eminence as, as novelists. It's a very unusual thing. And as he said often, you know, that quite often the child of a great novelist would, would have a go at one novel and then having got that bit of filial piety out the way would um, move on to something else. Yes. Um, but he was, you know, he was in it for the whole drink and he, and he, he devoted his life very seriously indeed to to writing and also i think one thing he had in common with kingsley which is comes through in experience and elsewhere is this great sense of the fact that the english language requires dedicated custodians you know they were both in very different ways really really passionate about usage and cadence and rhythm and correct use of punctuation and what words really mean and you know he's he's brilliant on that uh, in 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 the experience, but in lots of other books too. He has some excellent lines on structuring sentences, yes. what to avoid. You know, be careful of using words that, in their etymological sense, don't add up in the sentence you're putting them in. So the word dilapidated, he says, comes from the the Latin lapis, meaning stone. If you talk about a dilapidated forest, you're technically applying a word that really can't describe what you no. think it can. Can you um, write a, a quarry? Quite. You know, his his and his father's custodialism is exactly why I think many now see that as being terribly oh, white patri- male and stale. Pa- patriarchal and, patriarchal. And, and imperialistic and so on. In the sequence at the beginning of this episode, listeners will have heard a 1973, I think, interview with Kingsley. Um, 
He's joshing, but you can tell that there's an undertone of seriousness. His anxiety about his son's rise to stardom, and uh, how he would like him to be successful, but not too successful. You might have a passage in the book that, yes. that deals with this directly. Well, I mean, shall we get into that? One one of the 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 the, the themes in, in in the book is his alarm at Kingsley's decline, and this this passage is they've had a fantastically fractious dinner about um, where Nelson Mandela has been the main theme. So this is. Um, Kingsley Amos speaking. Let's change the subject. Okay, just one thing. Get some new dirt on Mandela while I'm in America because your old date is hopeless. Let's change the subject. Let's go back to women and queers and children. Agreed. Just one thing. You're a leaf in the wind of trend. Sealed with the fiery liqueurs, the dinner ended amicably, as it always did. But Kingsley's face, now rising from the table, registered real alarm. What I was seeing was an exponential alcoholic kick-in of trouncing efficacy. I reached out towards him. On a traffic island in the middle of the Edgware Road, that eternally disreputable thoroughfare, with its northwestward trek from Mammonic Marble Arch, past the pubs and offies and slot arcades beneath the Westway, past Little Venice and to lips of sides into Maida Vale, where we lived in a house with Philip and Jane thirty years ago, Kingsley fell over. And this was no brisk trip or tumble. It was a work of colossal administration. First came a kind of slow leak effect, giving me the immediate worry that Kingsley, when fully deflated, would spread out into the street on both sides of the island, where there were cars, trucks, steezing buses. Next, as I grabbed and tugged, he felt like a great ship settling on its side. Would it right itself or go under? Then came an impression of overall dissolution, and the loss of basic physical coherence. I groped around him, looking for places to shore him up, but every bit of him was falling, dropping, seeking the lowest level, like a mudslide. I got him home in the end. He found some balance, some elevation. I wedged my shoulder in his armpit, and slowly hauled. The incident never stopped being about 3% comic, even with his face at knee height and his eyes stark with apprehension. Like a man disappearing into a swamp, he never lost that glimmer of astonished amusement at what was happening to him, at the weight he carried, at the sheer greed of gravity, at the wheel of years. Dad, you're too old for this shit, I might have said to him. But why bother? Do you think he didn't know? You're too old for this, Dad. This kind of lark, this kind of caper. You're too old for this. It's so hard not to laugh. I mean... That whole passage is is at least 93% comic. The two bits that absolutely... Colossal administration <laughs> is just such a Martin Amos phrase. Only he could deploy a phrase like that to describe his father falling over in alcoholic wreckage, right? It's it's brilliant. Um, somehow it's just right. His, his observation about everything being at least 3% comic was a real insight for me and also a consolation because it's absolutely true that even death has its comic moments there's no doubt about it you know that there's a kind of comedy around absolutely every aspect of the human condition and both of them spent their lives looking for that three percent if you like and um, trying to pin it down in literature it's a moment about their profession the trade they they shared and it you know, my parents were declining. I mean, n neither of them were remotely like Kingsley, but I, I thought I thought of that passage and, and, and other other passages in experience about how the moment when the mediation of the, the, the father or the mother figure disappears is is so huge. And um, 
you know, he writes about it really brilliantly, I think. And again, it contradicts this notion of him as a slightly chilly writer. Kingsley Amos suffered multiple phobias, flying, being in a lift, the dark, being in a car. Yep. He would have nightmares, waking up in, in sweats, panic attacks. Um, he would have to go, he would have to be taken by Martin's uh, mother into Martin's room. Yes. And, and the young Martin Amos would actually have to calm his calm own his mother, father, down. father down by telling him stories. And That's quite this a, is an extraordinary... Quite a, quite a reflection, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that he... Clearly, there was exasperation at the, the, the fact that Kingsley was often just an infant. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's something wrong in that role reversal, isn't there, where the father is ushered into the child's bedroom to be comforted. I mean, that's a very... He doesn't write in any judgmental way about it. When you reflect upon it, that's a huge burden to place upon a child. And it's strange too, isn't it? Because Kingsley yeah. was of a generation where men were conscripted. Stoic. I mean, uh, yes, and you know, he he in his later years that ended up in this curious menage where Hilly, his Martin's mother, and uh, her, I think, third husband, if I'm right, moved in basically to look up, help, you know, have a place to live, but also to look after. Kingsley, because Kingsley was completely incapable of looking after himself once he and Elizabeth Jane Howard had parted. Martin Amis obviously came of age during the sexual revolution and yes. he talks about how, you know, the main slogan of the sexual revolution was there will be sex before marriage. And that unlike many of his friends' fathers, he says, who forbade them from going along with this, Kingsley was very encouraging of promiscuity. Yes. He was himself promiscuous, of course. But that Kingsley importantly passed on to him and his brother Philip the importance of Seeing love as the great enhancer of sex. Yes, exactly. Kingsley's a very strange mixture, and it comes out in experience that he became this sort of slightly caricatured reactionary at the Garrick Club bar. But he was also a very bohemian character um, and had grown up in the great, and had come of age in the great sort of liberalisation of universities and, uh, you know, clearly enjoyed a rampant, uh, adulterous sex life and, um, and, and enjoyed... When Martin started to hit the literary scene, enjoyed coming along with him to parties and to the famous Friday lunch that um, Clive James convened, at which um, you know Martin Amis and many others, uh, were, Chris Fitchins, were present. You, as a writer, must have taken an awful lot of inspiration and influence from Martin Amis, at least in principle. What did he teach you about writing? Well, he—he, he, I mean, one thing he taught me was that I probably wasn't going to be a novelist. I mean, I have written three thrillers, okay, um, but th they were fun and I really enjoyed them and uh, there are bits of them that I wince at and bits of them that I think that they're okay. But I really believe passionately, and and if people don't like it, that's just too bad, that people who write columns, um, and journalists generally actually, um, should be immersed in good fiction because good fiction gets into your neural system and tells you how to write. Now, actually, Amos, as you mentioned, Jack, you know, does on occasion literally tell you how to write. But let's say he didn't. Taking in the good digestion, um, a good di literary diet is, I think, absolutely essential. And I do worry about it because I think that the, the sort of exam factory that education has become added to the kind of collective suspicion of past writers, if you like, is militating against people who are interested in writing as a, a way of life, as a livelihood, 
really making it their business to to read books like this. When I when I started at the uh, at the Times in 1991, the gender and ethnic mix was not good, but the socioeconomic mix was a lot better than it is now in most newsrooms. Partly because the pay of journalism has just fallen, and there were a lot of reporters in the Times newsroom who had come up through the provinces. And one of the things I noticed about them was a lot of them would have a paperback novel in their jacket pocket. It was quite a tell, if you like, you know, that they, these were guys who were hard as nails, you know, really, really hard-boiled news reporters and editors. But they too, without any great show, valued the word, the language, you know, Sora working at a newspaper like The Times as a massive honour, which indeed it was, and I think it still is. And I do worry that that quality control just inevitably has has become less possible, I suppose, because the pace of digital life and uh, um, and the, the, the multiplicity of platforms, which is a good thing, by the way. I mean, the podcasting revolution, for example has added a whole new layer to the way that we can communicate. But that part of me, which is rooted in my upbringing, thinks, you know, I hope future journalists don't just read today's popular writers, that they go back and read read Joan Didion and James Baldwin and uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X and Kerouac. And what what often I find when I talk to 20-something writers and steer them in the direction of that kind of stuff is they, they, there's a delight at discovering that actually ideas which they thought were invented in 2012 have rather deeper roots, and, and they like it. To call back one last time to your uh, New European article, yes, we may not commemorate with candlelit vigils and instantly painted murals novelists, but we do do podcasts. And I'm glad once again to have you on the podcast, Matt. Thank you very much for your time. One last passage. Uh, what will that passage be? Well, um, as we've discussed, Experience goes all, goes all over the place. And um, one of the final sections is his writing up of a visit to Auschwitz, which, as we know, he wrote two novels about, Time's Arrow and The Zone of Interest. The Zone of Interest has just been made into a movie, uh, which I gather is quite good, thus breaking the Amos movie-making jinx. Um, but one of the themes in Experience is also the discovery of Lucy Partington, who was killed by the... Uh, where was disappeared for 20 years, and then her remains were found at the home of Fred Roseware. So that is mentioned in this. Um, and it's a typical sort of segue in, 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 in Amos's writing um, to move from uh, a kind of universal horror to the specific of, of the personal, if you like. Um, and in a way, it ends the book. I mean, there is a little bit more, but it's, it's the sort of, it's the summation of, of what the book is about um, and an explanation to the reader of, if you like, what he's learned, but also how baffled and mystified he still is by the world. So he's talking about the the Holocaust. Any serious immersion in this subject will take you through several phases. I found that these were fully replenished incredulity, despite all previous acquaintance with the facts, thwarted anger as the body casts about for a way to make itself felt, obscene vituperation, swearing and weeping, cursing and sobbing and thinking of the dead, a sense of lousiness, like an infestation, a nausea resembling, though not representing, extreme guilt. This is species shame, perhaps. And towards the end, capitulation, defeated ascent, 
at last you have toiled your way from incredulity to belief, or the mind has, the body, I suspect, takes longer to surrender and dumbly struggles to do so. It does this slow work at night, churning, mashing, heaving. Maybe this is also physical empathy or an attempt at it. The internal rearrangements used to wake me suddenly and I would feel as you do after a day spent in a speeding car or on rough water with the torso committed to motion and also tensing itself against it. I had been through this process before and I recognised every stop along the way as I fought for sleep in the hotel bed in Krakow. I think now, I think now of that meeting with my cousin David Partington. He told me that he couldn't see the word West, as in westerly, southwest, the West, without horror. Fred West, the one-man cat set. He told me that when he carried his sister, sister Lucy's coffin, he was grateful to, for the way the strap chafed his hand, grateful for the pain and its insistence on reality. It was for this insistence, too, that Marianne went to see and touch her sister's bones. David told me about the hours of swearing and weeping, how he rose in the night to swear and weep. And I felt then that atrocity does this. When you are close in, as he is, the task is not to accept, but simply to believe. Atrocity defies belief and also persecutes it, demanding something that can never be freely given, one's assent. Lucy Partington was my mother's sister's child. She was my cousin, not my sibling, not my daughter. I have never been told to believe something really unbelievable, just the usual articles of faith for a man of fifty, and they seem unlikely enough that the parents are going, the children are staying, and I am somewhere in between. Matt Dancona, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to My Martin Amos with me, Jack Aldane. Like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter with the handle at MyMartinAmos to find out who's up next on the series. 